after breakfast What's before lunch? It's Austin, Texas It's weird brunch Uh, he could have had West Nile because I guess a bunch of mosquitoes in Texas tested positive for West Nile. So we can add that into the mix. That's always cute. Fun. Oh, so mosquitoes can get testing. Do they have to prove they have symptoms first or are they allowed to just <laughs> fly it. on up? Those mosquitoes have high temperatures and you, know, okay. you can tell. When you yeah, see they, them, they're very sweaty mosquitoes. They lost their sense of taste when they were sucking blood. They're like, this might as well be a juice box. <laughs> I might have it. Yeah, this blood doesn't even taste good right now. <laughs> How was uh, New Mexico, Karina? Magical. What were your top three parts? Uh, hot air balloon ride. Can't complain about that. Did a river rafting trip and hiked up to the top of a mountain at sunset that was gorgeous Dang. yeah so three very like outdoorsy socially distancey kind of things um that were, were just things it was just nice to do things you know and not watch netflix and sit around indoors right but really yeah, what I like was that that state is taking all this shit way, way seriously. And it was just relaxing to be in a place where everyone wore a mask and it wasn't even a thing and nobody was fighting about it. Arkansas was not like that. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> mask wise, at least masks, no one was wearing masks when we were there. Shocking. But luckily we were in the cabin up on my parents' land so we didn't have to deal with them I'm so shocked. except for the right so shocking. <laughs> we, we came back we were driving through you know the worst part of texas and um about halfway through so like halfway between lubbock and dripping springs just imagine what a terrible place that is <laughs> we stopped in some sort of a town that's really just a truck stop and we went in there to refuel and get some monster energy drinks, both put on our masks like good girls. And we mm -hmm. go inside and nobody is wearing a mask and everybody is angry. You could just feel it. Everybody's mad with no mask on. It was like the whole town had rabies. And so we immediately stopped holding hands for sure. And then <laughs> Trish, took her mask off because she was like, I'm not dying because these motherfuckers think that like I'm trying to hurt them with my mask. And I'm like, you do what you got to do. I'm leaving my mask on because I'm not dying because one of these rabbit dogs breeds on me. So we both took our own approach to survival and I got stared at so hard. And the truth is the real reason I left my mask on is because like, that's like covering my jaw. And I was just like, with all these guys staring at me, I don't, I, I look more feminine this way. I'm going to keep <laughs> it that way. I would rather get judged for wearing a mask than have somebody clock me and murder, like another trans woman gets murdered because all these angry non-mask wearing rural Texans are trying their asses off to get COVID for some reason. Anyway, that's my story of road tripping during a pandemic. Well, I'm glad you made it out alive. <laughs> it was terrifying. Like, I can't, I, I'm not easily scared. And like, it was terrifying. It looked like everybody was ready to just start a war. There's some weird thing in the air. 
Where was it? Was it like Abilene? No, it was. It wasn't a big town. It was some small anonymous town, like between Abilene and where you really turn back on to two ninety or seventy one. Okay. Yeah, I can try to figure out which. See, when Marfa. we stopped, I it never. It wasn't on the way to Marfa because we were going north. You know, it's in that mm -hmm. northwestern, just south of where all the windmills start. Part of the West Texas bullshit past the hill country masks man just fucking wear them the president did it now at one <laughs> time so did you see he wore like it with his nose out like an idiot like oh well sneezing is fine mm -hmm. did y'all see like there were some screenshots of some <clears throat> um probably very civil women who were like I'm not wearing a mask because I'm not going to support China. And then, so there was that screenshot. And then it was a screenshot of her comment to the Trump post or photo tweet. And she was like, that's a handsome man. Where can I find a mask? Uh, oh, I think I did see that. People <laughs> was, are trash. It was fuck awful. <laughs> Welcome to Weird Brunch then. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Remember when we used to uh, just do light banter about Britney Spears? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Brit. So oh, much stuff going on right now in the world of Britney Spears. What did I do? You unlocked it all. Both of us are just like, oh, oh shit. Right, Britney. <laughs> not Still not joking. Britney. There is a protest going on, I think, what, today or tomorrow? No, next week. I think uh, it's there's like a protest going on next week for her uh, at her conservatorship like court date mm -hmm. and not joking uh, Whitney and I were like we could make it there by then and then I looked <laughs> up RVs we could rent so we wouldn't have to stay anywhere. Um, oh, we looked up the RV thing, and guess what? Turns out, like, people are really into RVs right now, and, like, you can't get one. Yeah. Yeah. And they're there's jacking up the one, prices. There's one on Guadalupe, like, a really nice 2019 Winnebago in town for a fairly reasonable price. We got really excited when we applied to it through, like, the RV version of Airbnb. And like, we didn't hear back for two weeks, which is weird. And then like the service got back to us saying, oh yeah, that guy's a big scammer. We've cut him out of our platform. Sorry for the inconvenience. Like he was using his Winnebago to like lure people into some sort of weird financial <gasps> ripoff. And I'm like, when else would that have worked? <laughs> Jesus. We should though probably invest in some type of winnebago and just yeah rent that shit out or just cast oh, people with a fake one yeah somehow <laughs> just a, yeah. a cardboard yeah. one yeah <laughs> um sorry just really i just really quick uh before we move on for for good uh so Brittany. <laughs> yeah there i guess it was like a couple weeks ago somebody was like commented on one of her Instagram posts that was like, hey, Brittany, if you're in trouble, wear yellow. And then the next day, she wore a yellow top. And then 
a couple days later, it was like, hey, if you're in trouble, wear black. And then like two days later, she wore all black. Uh-huh. So they're trying to communicate with her the only way that they can because she has no fucking rights. That's all. But, She's but saying, like, I need help, y'all. Okay, is it the same? So is this like the same account saying yellow and then black or is it like every fan is saying hey Brittany if you're in trouble where and then like all the colors are represented and then one eighth of the people get to be right every day um <laughs> that sounds like a more fun game <laughs> but it's just one person and then everybody's oh. like liking that so it gets bumped up okay so the, okay I just wanted to make sure this was like a real hit and not just like Look, this person said it was going to be sunny tomorrow. Right. <laughs> or, Brittany, wear a crop top that says, please help me tomorrow. <laughs> and she does. I like that it's a crop top. Like, oh. <laughs> oh, wait, wear something top. that says, please help me. Like, Brittany, yeah. <laughs> wear something to tell us you're okay, but also show us those abs. Britt. I have not seen her not in a crop top since quarantine. Like it's it's all like princessy, like yeah. peasant crop tops. And well, because the crop top tight. symbolizes her truncated rights. I mean, she's trying to tell true. us. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Her crop top is a symbol of her entire life struggle. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> is that there's a literary term is that an, an aphorism where it's like you say the crown in reference to like the king of England or something and for Brittany oh, it would be the crop top synecdoche Synec is it synecdoche I, I believe so. you you're smart well the crop top to Brittany I mean, if you Google Britney Spears wearing yellow, everything is like, this is a cry for help. And it's on multiple sources. Ooh. That's all. I believe Okay, it. I'm, I'm also I also happy. can't help but notice that you're wearing yellow. So let's check in real fast. Are you oh, okay? It's... I am. <laughs> okay. It's Every now and then I like to wear a politically uh, geared shirt for my work conferences calls so i've got my no justice oh, no yeah, peace yep. mm. nice. i'm wearing a well my classic sully north face knockoff from the movie sully <laughs> as Hell i yeah. do <laughs> but i have on this like uh, you can't see it it's dark it's this crushed velvet romper that i wore to acl fest years ago because I'm just wearing old shit from my closet to make me feel like I'm not constantly wearing pajamas which up until yesterday was basically all I wear oh yeah I'm wearing a see-through tank top that I have been carefully cropping out of zoom calls all day long I've done that before oh yeah <laughs> Oh, I'm Lisa Friedrich. Oh, I'm Karina Magyar. I'm Whitney Lamont. 
and I think we said it already, but it is weird brunch. (laughs) We've been distracted. Boy, do we got some stories for you. But who's going first is the big question. So let's talk about the Pueblo people, um, specifically the ones who live in northern New Mexico, because it's got it's got a good ending here. So, well, it's got a good middle. Let's not talk. Does about it? <laughs> yeah. Can right. it really have that? So the Pueb- there's still a Pueblo settlement uh, just south of Taos, New Mexico, that ha- that has been occupied as a residential area for more than a thousand years. Um, it's the oldest and longest continuously inhabited settlement in the Americas, north or south, um, in terms of like by the same people. So they're still there. And the funny thing is when I was there, everything was mostly open in New Mexico because they didn't have much coronavirus. Um, but that particular settlement uh, said, no, we are closed. If you even drive by to look at it, we will shoot the tires on your truck. So they were like, Fuck they didn't yeah. want anything to do with fucking white people diseases. They were like, no, we know this drill. Stay the fuck <laughs> No shit. But anyway, they're still there. They've been there the whole time. And that is rare because, as you may or may not have heard, white people tended to either move or kill any native inhabitants they found. So how did the Pueblo get to stay? So good question. Um, they shot all the tires off. <laughs> they shot, yeah, yeah. They they updated their website as soon as they saw trouble coming. So most of the um, tribes in northern New Mexico were uh, mostly impacted by this guy named Juan de Oñate, 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 O-N-A-T-E. He was a Oñate. general uh, who conquered the area. He was a conquistador uh, around 1600. And um, he was most notable for sentencing all Indian men 25 or older to having their feet cut off so that they could be forced into personal slavery. Um, So after he slaughtered a whole bunch of villages, of the 500 survivors that remained, he had one of their feet cut off. The unusual thing about this is that... It's not the feet getting cut off, it's something else. Yeah, is that <laughs> a word got back to Spain and they hauled his ass back and put him on trial for crimes against humanity and convicted him. Hell yeah! Because uh, Spain at that time had a policy of um, not doing cruel and not- things to native people that were encountered in New Spain. God, can they talk to our cops i know right or our Um, president so yeah using excessive force he got convicted uh it's not he wasn't like sentenced to death or anything and he did get to come back and continue to be governor of new mexico but you know he had a black mark on his record so Mm -hmm. anyway um he despite that became known as sort of the father of New Mexico and therefore there's lots of statues of him all over New Mexico including in Santa Fe and a bunch of little towns all around there Um, and people mostly remembered him for like the civilizing thing he brought there that has recently been re-examined so to speak 
um, especially as the Sacoma massacre uh, has been unearthed. And in 1998, a group of Pueblo Indians went to the statue in Alcalde, New Mexico, and removed the right foot from it and then kept it. So he had no foot on his Good. statue, which was pretty badass. Uh, and then it was just there as a reminder that he was an asshole and stole feet until June 15th of this year when that statue got pulled down. So it's one of the statues that's been yanked in the current climate. Anyway, why do I bring up all that? Keep all the feet thing in mind because in 1680, so this is 80 years later, the Pueblo people of this uh, particular village that's still inhabited today uh, revolted and it was successful. So this was led by a man named Pope, spelled just like Pope, but said Pope. He- uh, The more fun way to say Pope. The more fun way, yeah. ole, Pope. Uh, who knows what his name in his native language was? This is what the Spanish called him. They called him Pope. So he uh, was kind of a leader amongst the various 46 or 47 little mini tribes in the area uh, when a major famine hit. And the famine weakened the Spaniards at the time and also gave him like a rallying cry saying this famine is being sent to us by the gods because we have submitted to, to the white man's rule. And that really like kind of got everybody on side in terms of what's it's time to boot these fuckers out. They suck. They cut our feet off. You know, they're, they're awful. We're, we're not going to deal with it anymore. And so like 42 of the 47 settlements agreed to join together in a massive army. And they decided on August 11th, 1680, they were going to drive the Spaniards out. Now, the way they could send that around, they didn't have telegrams or anything. They sent like riders out on horseback. One of the riders was captured and forced to reveal the plans. So the Spaniards got hip to it. Pope found out about that. And he said, fuck it, we're doing it a day early. And he got everybody rallied together and they went in a day early, caught them by surprise, slaughtered 400 of the, I don't know, 800 Spaniards who were living there at the time and sent the rest of them on the fucking run chased them out, was the only successful rebellion and reclamation of land by any native tribe in North America ever. Woo, on, the yeah. out, the, um, on the way out, they, the Spaniards quickly, you know, once they realized what was happening, gathered up all their valuables, all their like fancy metals and gold and shit like that, and threw them into the traveling trunks of their wives. And uh, they dragged them with them, the wives and the traveling trunks. And what they did was that they would hide them as they were escaping down the canyons along the Rio Grande Valley. This is the upper Rio Grande Valley, not the one in Texas. Um, and what they would do is when the Pueblos caught up, they'd say, look, let us go. We'll tell you where we hid all this treasure. You can go have it. We're leaving. Don't worry. Just you can have the treasure if you let us keep going. Uh, that didn't work. More of them got killed. More of them got killed. So finally, the few survivors made it all the way down to Santa Fe, which was the major fort, and that's where they stayed. And northern New Mexico was Pueblo land, unmolested, for 12 whole years, which 
doesn't sound great, but again, represents the only time that European settlers were ever successfully kicked off of native land, ever. Yeah. Yay! Pope um, reigned over his Pueblo kingdom in uh, either, if you listen to the Spaniards, a reign of terror, or if you look at uh, the oral history of the area in, you know, relative prosperity um, until the Spanish came back and did what they always do uh, and conquered everybody except for that one settlement, which uh, was left unmolested as a sign of like, look, we're back. We're fucking keeping the land. We're still looking for what we're looking for here, but let's try to live in peace. And it's remained that way ever since. So, there is a canyon off the Rio Grande where the settlers escaped through. The canyon sometimes has water in it, sometimes doesn't. It's called the Arroyo Aguaje de la Pataca. And the translation of that is... Well, God damn. The dry riverbed that sometimes has water in it of the hip flask. Pataca means hip flask. So the literal translation and the most accepted reason for the name is that this is where early explorers would refuel their canteens. You know, like they found some water here. It was a really easy place to walk down with your horses. Your hip flask is your canteen. You'd fill it up with water. But pitaca is also Spanish slang for traveling trunk. It's kind of a jokey slang, my hip flask. My giant lady's traveling trunk was her hip flask, right? Like, oh my God, women, they're always overpacking. We bring a canteen, they bring the whole house. So, story goes that it's called the Arroyo Aguaje de la Pataca because all those traveling trunks that were left behind as a bribe to the Pueblo were left in this canyon. And so many people, so many Spaniards were either harassed or killed or died during the 12 years that they were exiled from the area that nobody who returned knew where they were. Nobody came back to claim them. The trunks full of Spanish gold and valuables and pearls and all that shit are still there to this day <gasps> in that canyon. And, Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, yes. hold on. Yes. What? So how do we know that they really dumped those lady trunks? We don't because yeah. the trunks have never been found. People have gone looking. Right. But they've never been found. But that is the story on the record that they're still somewhere in there because nobody came back to get them of the Spanish population that returned. The people who have gone looking for the trunks in this deep canyon off the Rio Grande say that, you know, it's unstable, it's volcanic rock, sometimes there's rock slides, you occasionally hear rocks bounding down the hill. But they say the weird thing about this canyon is, when you hear a rock falling down a hill, it doesn't bounce evenly, like you would, it doesn't sound like a rock sliding down a hill, it sounds like bump, 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 with like a big pause in between each bound. And they say that it's not rocks falling down the hill, but it's the Pueblo Indians with only one foot guarding the treasure <gasps> right from the after they kicked the Europeans out of the country. Oh my God, I just got the willies! <laughs> so that 
is the probably bullshit story my river guide told me when I was on the Rio Grande. But I think it's a fucking great story. And I looked it up. And at least the parts about the Pueblo uh, revolt, the Spaniards being chased down that canyon, and everything like that, that's all true. The thing that's maybe up for debate is whether or not those trunks are still in that canyon, or of course, whether or not the ghosts of the Pueblo are guarding them. Oh, that was oh. scary at the end. <laughs> I know, I wanna go now. <laughs> People have, there's other canyons really close by there too that are rumored to have uh, hidden gold mines that the Catholic Church tried to keep to themselves. Um, and then when they got exiled during that 12 year period, the uh, monks who knew where, that, where they were got killed. And so nobody can find those gold mines anymore. So people go looking for those gold mines. There's a lot of hidden treasure tales in that area of the Rio Grande because of the Pueblo revolt. Dang. I do oh, cool. not ever want to see a one foot missing in like Native American ghost ever. <laughs> that sounds no. terrifying. Oh, yeah. that's like the that scared me. <laughs> I love it. Oh my god, I love it. So. Like I said, I, I've been on Reddit a lot, <clears throat> and uh, I went to one subreddit, and I'm going to let y'all guess which one at the end of this, uh, and I discovered the Fort Worth Missing Trio. Um, <clears throat> so let's go back in time to 1974. We all remember. Um, so. December 23rd, 1974, uh, Mary Rachel Trulica, Lisa Renee Wilson, and Julianne Mosley, all from Fort Worth, Texas, go to the Seminary South Shopping Center in Fort Worth for Christmas shopping two days before Christmas. <laughs> Ladies, get it together. <laughs> um, the oldest of the three girls is Mary Rachel Trulica who goes by her middle name, Rachel. So you'll hear me talk about her as Rachel. Uh, she was 17. And then Lisa Renee Wilson was 14. She goes by Renee. And then the youngest of the girls was Julianne Mosley. Um, and she was nine years old. So they uh, go to the shopping center and the car that they were driving, a 1972 Oldsmobile 98, was all that was left of the girls after just a few hours. Um, they disappeared. So <clears throat> Mary or Rachel Tulika is a, a married high school student. Oof. <laughs> at Southwest High School. <laughs> Well, I mean, 1974, how was she like 17? She 18? was a 17 year old. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's still, you know, by any Bonkers. standards. Yeah. But more under, more common back then, I guess. I mean, yeah. Isn't that like, she's only 17. Wasn't that a hit song at that time? Oh, yeah. So many songs about 17 year olds back then. 
them. They made a whole magazine about it. <laughs> I still subscribe. I'm just kidding. I do get their emails. Um, yeah, that was so, originally a bridal magazine. I really believed that for way, way more than I should have. Um, <clears throat> so it's Rachel's, uh, Rachel's been married to her husband, Tommy, for Tommy. about six months. Tommy. Uh, for about six months uh, as of December 23rd, 1974. Um, on that morning, a little bit before noon, Rachel, Renee, and Julianne are like, let's go Christmas shopping. At first, it was just Rachel and Renee, and then Julianne was like, I want to go uh, because she, and I quote, didn't want to spend the day alone. She's nine. Um, so the older Same. girls were like, you got you to gotta get permission, dude. You're, you're nine years old. Uh, so Julianne runs back inside and she calls her mom Rayanne. And later, Rayanne kind of, you know, going over the phone call again, which I don't know. I feel like oh, grieving parents are always going to remember like all of the negative things that happened. Um, but she was, she says that she was working for an electrical contractor and she had just separated from her husband uh, quote it was a bitter bitter time I remember that Julie called and wanted to go to seminary south I said no you don't have any money you just stay home I knew Renee and her mother but I didn't really know Rachel but Julie kept whining about how she wouldn't have anybody to play with I finally gave in but I told her to be home by six this sounds like the plot of a Halloween sequel. I fucking know. It's bizarre. Um, Renee wanted to be home by 4 p.m. There was, you know, she had a Christmas party to go to. Her new boyfriend just gave her a promise ring that day. She's got to get hot for this party to show off that promise ring, baby. Mm -hmm. So... The girl's first stop is the Army-Navy store in Fort Worth. Naturally. What is that? <laughs> um, uh, Renee had some shit on layaway, so they, they got there, picked up Renee's stuff, and then they... <laughs> what did she have on layaway at the Army-Navy surplus store? A sleeping I bag? Do not and know. Layaway, I remember people, my mom owned a resales clothing store my whole life. And she did. People would put stuff on layaway all the time. You could put anything on layaway back then. Oh, for sure. But the Army Navy surplus store is where you go to get like Swiss Army knives. Like just... they've got cool. They got like tents and like that's all I can think of. But like tents, <laughs> yeah. uh, light vests for water skiing. Uh, you know, patches probably. <laughs> Patches, hatches, flags, charcoal. Yeah. <laughs> um. So after they get that stuff from layaway, they go to the Seminary South Shopping Center. Uh, several witnesses had reported seeing them at that mall today. That day, 
when the girls did not return home, their families start heading up to the mall at about 6 p.m. And that's when they find the car parked in the Sears upper level parking lot. Uh, along with the car, inside the car, the gifts that the girls had purchased were found. So they had at least gotten back to the car, dropped that stuff off. Um, and then <clears throat> the families stayed at the mall all night, waiting for the girls to return. The Fort Worth Police Department was called and the case was quickly handed over to the Youth Division of the Missing Persons Bureau because it's 1974. So anytime a child goes missing, they have run away. <laughs> Even if it's three children all at once. Yes. I mean, that. so many well, I mean, kidnapped kids were... Yeah. It's probably better. You said they handed it over to the FBI. Like, I would trust them more than... No, the Youth Division of Missing Persons Bureau. So I heard Bureau and just assumed. <laughs> I mean, you, Yeah. Uh, why wouldn't you? It's some kind of bureau. I'm assuming they do investigations. Let's get this shit together. <laughs> um, the next day after, so the, the Christmas Eve of 1974, Tommy Trulika, Rachel's husband, receives a letter in the mail at their home address that appeared to be written by Rachel, or it was supposed to look that way. Uh, it read, I know I'm going to catch it, but we had a, we had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. Whew. Is there any more frightening thing for a parent to hear than we're going to Houston, see you in a week? That's true. Especially like that, uh, that was addressed to her husband. Oh, so then, so then the parents are hearing that from him. Yike! Yikes. The letter also, was written. Hmm? Yeah, no, just that they thought that they wouldn't find the car, even though it was in the parking lot of the place they were at. Right, upper level. But anyways, sorry. Continue. No, I like that you pointed that out. On top of that, the letter was written in ink, but the envelope stuff that you write on the envelope was written in pencil. Address? Addressed in pencil. Yeah. Um, so that's a little weird, right? And mm. then the letter was written on a sheet of paper that was wider than the envelope little weird. Not, not too off, though. It was addressed to Thomas A. Trelika instead of Tommy, as Rachel called him. And Rachel oh. was written in the upper left-hand corner of the envelope, but it kind of looked like they misspelled her name at first, uh, because the L at the end of Rachel looked like an E, and then they did that thing where they just like jammed the pencil into the paper over and over to make it the bigger one, which is the L. Okay. So um, this was not written by Rachel. I think we don't know. 
maybe penned, but not dictated, but not read. But not read. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this sounds like me trying to write any letter in the 80s. Like, it's hard. You pick the wrong size paper, you make a fuck up, you get frustrated. I've yeah. definitely put the wrong size paper in a way too small envelope because yeah. at that point, <laughs> you're just like, no. Yeah, there's so many yeah. logistics to writing a letter successfully. It's hard. It, 100%. The return address had no city on it, and there was a blurred zip code that appeared to be 76083, but the number three was either backwards or it was a partial eight. Sounds like a partial eight to me, guys. Uh, it's assumed that the zip code was uh, either from El Eliasville near Throckmorton or Weatherford, Texas. Um, during the 70s and 80s, handwriting ex experts across the nation, including the FBI, Whitney, uh, examined, <laughs> it. They examined it three times, but each time the result came back inconclusive. So we don't know who wrote it. Okay. The family obviously didn't believe that the letter was written by her. They also were like, those girls didn't run away. Uh, Julianne's mother... The youngest girl said, I know my daughter and I know those other girls and they're not runaways. Uh, Judy Wilson, Renee's mother said, I could have told you that night that they didn't run away. Renee really wanted to go to that party and no nine-year-old's going to run off two days before Christmas. Yeah. Solid that's point. fucking true. Lamb that's fun. fucking true. Yeah, that's detective work. No, yeah, that, I mean, that's the best point that's been made so far. <laughs> yeah. um, Frances Langston, Rachel's mother, said she was like, a lot of people may have think that they left with someone they knew, but I'll always think until the day I die, those girls were taken. Um, families continued the search. They, you know, did the handbills and missing persons flyers and then started like tips and Tips from different witnesses started to come out. And in early 75, there was one man, he said he was an acquaintance of Rachel's, said he saw him in the record department of a store. There were record departments of stores? Yeah, yeah like the music section, I would guess. Kind of like at yeah. Barnes oh. and Nobles. Yes, now it makes sense. I smoke a little bit of weed. Um... He and Rachel saw each other and they spoke briefly. Uh, the man claimed that the, another person appeared to be with the girls. During that same time, women's clothes were found in Justin, Texas, investigated, not belong to the girls. Uh, spring of 1975, the families were like, A cab, fuck the police, they're not doing shit, and hire a private detective named John Swaim. In August of 75, Swain discovered that a 28-year-old man was making a string of obscene phone calls in the area, oh, which my is, mind. that, yeah, that's also just high 70s, man. Like, that's yeah. high 1970s, let's be porny on the phone. <laughs> um, that was the heavy breathing era, too. And it wasn't even yeah. clever yet. Golden State Killer did that shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 
this man, the 28-year-old heavy breather, worked at a store in Fort Worth, and Rachel had applied for a job uh, just before Christmas, so just a little bit before she went missing. It was discovered that he was using that position of being able to hire people, uh, just getting young women's information. Um, six women had applied to the store that had received these obscene phone calls. Um, another thing is that he lived in the neighborhood of Rachel's parents and then moved away shortly before she got married. In the end, nothing ever came of this suspect. In 1975, April, Swaim went to Fort Lavaca with 100 volunteers after getting a tip that the girls had been killed and taken there. No trace of the girls found. Um, a year later, reported that three skeletons are found in a field outside of Alvord, Texas by an oil drilling crew. S Mr. Swaim has the bones checked, and it's not three girls. It's uh, a teenage boy and two other females. None of them are the girls. Wow. In March of 19... <laughs> there's, there's a lot of kids' bones in and around Fort Worth. Apparently. It's just a I thing. Mean, yeah. It's uh, the city built on the bones of children. Yeah, bit of a Halloween tradition. <laughs> uh, in March of 1976, a psychic called one of the families and told them that the girls could be found near an oil well. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, okay. that's, I mean, that's like calling somebody in Hawaii and saying the body can be found near the ocean. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so after, after that psychic called, uh, searchers focused on a small community uh, rising star just outside of Abilene. That's probably where you are. Um, <laughs> nothing's ever found from those oil fields. In 1979, John Swain, still on the job, but he dies following a drug overdose that was later ruled a suicide. Upon his death, he ordered that all of his files on, the, on this case be destroyed. Mm. What? Weird. Why? He's dead. Nobody knows. Know. Lisa, what? Typos and like scratched paper and backwards threes in it. I'm just, you know, asking <laughs> for a Zodiac killer. <laughs> uh, probably. In spring of 1981, police investigators are called to a location in Brazoria County after human remains had been found in a swampy area. That's actually where, uh, uh, oh God. Woody Harrelson's dad, Charles Harrelson, uh, dropped the first murder body in Brazoria County. Uh, yeah. So nothing comes of that. After uh, a month of investigation, they discover some human remains. They don't belong to the three girls. In January of 2001... The case is reopened and assigned to homicide detective Tom Boucher. Boucher. <laughs> he, <clears throat> he believes, it's probably Boucher, I don't know. He Boucher. believes that the girls, yeah, yeah. he believes Boucher. that the girls 
left the mall with someone they trusted. He stated, we can say they were at one point seen with one individual, but we believe there was more than one involved. Over the years, searchers have continued to come through Texas brush, explored hundreds of back roads. The families have walked creek beds, county roads, nothing. Decades after the girl's disappearance, there have been no reports of new developments in the case, aside from a store clerk came forward uh, around the time of the woman's disappearance or the girl's disappearance and said she had seen the girls at the mall that day. The woman reported that she saw three girls being forced into a yellow pickup truck near Buddy's grocery store at the mall. Not buddies. The truck, not buddies. Uh, the truck was described to have lights on top of it. The witness, however, could never be located by police, and the story was never verified. Yeah. Huh. Mm. What a bummer! Is that it? That's it. Um, <laughs> I guess I feel like I've I've heard that story before, not on our podcast or anything like that, but I I've heard that. And yeah, there's it's there's two tragic. more things that are just one of them's like yeah, this other guy said that he saw them being forced into a van or one girl into a van, so it was like only one. That's not them. Right. Uh, and then that's April some other abducted child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, a former policeman and security guard at the seminary South Sears said that there was a security guard on the night they uh, disappeared. Oh, they were seen with a security guard on the night they disappeared. So that's three, four people, three people saying that they saw someone with them. Man, can't trust Yeah, I mean, I could see, like, if I were even, like, a teenager and some dude who, like, seemed like an authority figure had, like, some type of car that did have lights on top of it, whether it was cop lights or not, I would be like, oh, fuck, this person's probably legit. No, <laughs> but I would die. I, I could see myself as a kid being like, okay, but man, kidnapping three girls, one of who is 16 years or 17 years old is ballsy and I mean, horrible, but like, right. I can't, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine trying to kidnap anybody, but three people is insane. Yeah. yeah. Also AMCAP. It's you know, all mall cops are bastards. We got to keep that in mind. You know. That's who I think did it. I bet there's something the, there. That security guard? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would. Oh, yeah. That does make sense. <laughs> who was it <laughs> that truck... used to pretend to be, he would, was it Bundy who would pretend to be, uh, like, security guards and try to kidnap, or, like, to get victims there's a serial like a famous serial killer who did that yeah i don't think it was bundy um but yeah i i know that i've i've heard that before it's just it's i think it would be less crazy if there weren't two 
girls that are puberty and older. Right. Unless it was, I don't know, three guys. Who knows? No one knows. I got it at Unresolved Mysteries. <laughs> so <credit. laughs> Oh, man, I wanted to play Guess the Reddit. Uh, I was already, I, was, oh, I forgot. I was going to guess that subreddit. I mm-hmm. go on it all the time. It's a and good one. Kenneth Bianchi is the one who I think was posing as a guard. Anyways, no, and. I guess r slash bones of Fort Worth. That's what I was going to guess. Uh, oh. <laughs> it's not real. I'm sorry, Lisa. I keep getting you. I know. I mean, it no, could be I real. Just- I don't think I've been a perfect amount of high on this podcast in a while. <laughs> Y'all are going to just get me left and right. <laughs> All right. Well, mine takes place, well, the majority of it takes place in 1974 time also uh-huh. uh, in San Francisco. Um, so what a coincidence. OMG. But uh let's do this shit so most of what i'm getting my info from is this article from newsweek um from 2017 or 2018 and the article is called the most dangerous gay man in america and i'm already turned on this is a wild (laughs) ride All right. Reverend Raymond Boshears, we'll start in 1973. Raymond Boshears is locking up his community center in the Tenderloin neighborhood, I guess, of San Francisco. The Tenderloin is notoriously uh, bad. It's not a safe place to be. And especially back in the seventies, that's where a bunch of like homeless people live, but also like gay kids who had been kicked out of their homes and like any drug addicts, any like trans people, like everybody who didn't have any money (laughs) was in the tenderloin. Uh, So he's locking up. And he hears these fucking kids behind him. And earlier in that day, these like asshole children had been throwing like cherry bombs into traffic right outside his community center. And he had like called the cops on them and they were pissed. And so they come jump him as he's locking up and they're like, you know, calling him a bunch of, uh, gay slurs they beat the shit out of him almost to within an inch of his life and that's the day when he's like you know what fuck all this i'm sick of getting the shit kicked out of me and other gay people in the community or black people or anybody getting the shit kicked out of them because they're different and i'm gonna take this shit into my own hands hell yeah um which sounds great, you know, and is for a little bit. But if anybody knows from, like, actual vigilante stuff, it doesn't always go great. 
Um, yeah. So Reverend Bo Shears decides he's going to fight back with fists, with knives, with pool cues and chains, with whatever they can find. And he's going to make his own group and they're going to call themselves the Lavender Panthers. And he's modeling this group after the Black Panthers. And he even kind of stole their logo a little bit. And their logo is a panther on the prowl, but it's like a purple lavender color. So as he's talking to his followers about this, he has a 410 gauge shotgun and he's like, we're now forced to act, quote, the police look the other way when a gay is beaten. The beaten person is threatened as if he were the criminal, not the victim. We shall retaliate. Never again will we just sit by. And so this group of people who has been completely ignored by the police is like, well, okay, this, this is better than getting the shit kicked out of us. Um, so yeah, there's this group of people now kind of parading around, uh, at night you can call their hotline and they'll come and like help you out if you think some shit's going down or if kids are attacking your place of business. Man, Uh, fuck kids. I mean, it was a lot of, yeah, well, kids, but, um, Let's talk about our guy, Reverend Bo Shears. So he was born in 1935, and he grew up in Centerville, Illinois. He was extremely, uh, extremely religious as a teen. Um, his grandmother and aunts raised him, and his grandma always wanted him to become a preacher. At age 14, he was working for the Midway Baptist Church or Midway Baptist Mission Church. Um, and a year later, he was he became the superintendent, which I don't even know how that's possible. Maybe there weren't a lot of people around. Um, but uh, at 16, he left school to work as an orderly in a hospital in Peoria, Illinois. Um, Right after that, he joins the Navy as a medical corpsman, and then he gets discharged in 1955, which he described as medical reasons, but there's also claims that he made that he suffered, quote, serious injury, a serious injury to the head, causing what was then thought to be a minor brain dysfunction. So the Navy did something he got hurt on the job there and the Navy gave him a pension and that was basically his only source of income for the rest of his life. Uh, Over the next several years, he studies at a small Bible college. He preaches across the South and Midwest and he, because he was like raised by his grandma and elderly aunts, he's, and was poor. He's, very focused on the rights of poor people and the elderly. In the late 50s, he graduates from Lee Bible College and he starts studying with Billy James Hargis, 
who is one of America's most famous and anti-gay Christian evangelists. And um, with Hargis, Bo Shears kind of perfects his style of preaching. And uh, like the second Hargis found out that he was gay, he's like, get the fuck out of here because obviously he's hateful and horrible. Um, in the early 60s, Bo Shear is in his late 20s and he starts to get involved in the civil rights movement. He fights for desegregation and he ends up participating in a sit-in in Belleville, Illinois to protest the mistreatment of African Americans. And some shit goes down and goes down very poorly for him and possibly one other person. So at, there's no like real details, but what is said to have happened is he gets arrested for groping a 17 year old boy. Uh-huh. And Boshears tells a reporter, I was arrested for groping a minor. However, the boy wasn't named in any reports, which could be because of his age. The boy was also supposedly the nephew of Belleville's mayor. And no other details exist. And none of the people that this person interviewed recall anything about that event. So whether he actually did grope this 17-year-old is questionable. Not that I would want to blame the victim, but if it was, you know, the 60s and you're trying to arrest a gay guy for, you know, protesting Being. or something, that's a, that's a, I think, a easy way to do it. So this, everybody in town hears about this and he ends up getting sentenced to six months in county jail. It's embarrassing for his whole family and while he's locked up he's he's mistreated he's confused he's really angry with the police and he gets released in uh 1965 and around town everyone thinks he's a sex offender and so he's like all right i'm going to san francisco that's where the gay mecca is right now and uh that's where I'm going to go. So he's 31 and he doesn't know anybody in the city, but he finds an apartment on Turk street, which is in the Tenderloin. And, uh, he drifts between a few churches trying to meet people that way because that's what he comes from. And one of the clergy members that he meets says that he should start his own ministry. And Boshears is like, you know what? I'll start a ministry in the Tenderloin. I've come across lots of gay runaways, trans men and women, drag queens, people who have to turn to prostitution. Uh, One person said, quote, it's hell. You start there as a kid. You can't qualify for welfare because you're too young. You can't get a job and there's nowhere to go. You start selling your body to live and earn, to earn a living out on the street at night. 
on the meat rack in front of Flag's shoe store or wherever the action is. So he's found these people who do need a lot of help. And the police aren't helping that area of town at all either. Whenever they need to up their number of arrests, they'll just go there and start arresting, you know, anybody basically on the street who looks different. There's also a bunch of teenagers who think it's fun to just go down there and beat the shit out of people. There's also a supposed serial killer who is active in the area at the time. There were a few, obviously, that time in California. But this one was called The Doodler, who I had never heard of. And it was a guy they never caught who supposedly would, like, doodle pictures of people and like end up murdering them he killed like i think it was like 15 people i didn't have time to fully go down the wormhole of the doodler but worth a look oh 14 murders of gay men in the mid 70s are attributed to him so it's a dangerous place like i said um yeah a typical night Young gay men and drag queens would go to the bars. Kids would come through and harass them. And if you called the police, they would just be like, cool, figure it out for yourselves. And Bo Shears wants to help them. And so in 1969, he starts a support group called the Helping Hand Center. um, And that's ministering to the needs of the people and helping out the elderly. He... uh, starts to throw an annual drag queen ball uh, at the Veterans Administration for Wounded Soldiers. They brought food and clothing to prisoners, gave advice to prostitutes, and officiated a few gay weddings, even though they weren't legal at the time. Uh, He also becomes a licensed bail bondsman so he can bail out young gay men after cops throw him in jail for what have you. So he's very passionate in doing a bunch of things that are helping out this community. Um, He was involved. He at least wrote about one of the, I think this is considered one of the, or like the first um, riot for gay rights even like before stonewall happened but it's september 14th 1961 at the tay bush inn after uh hundreds of young gay men were dancing at 3 15 in the morning at this place and the jukebox goes off outside dozens of uniformed officers are waiting with billy clubs and ready to arrest people They arrest 103 men on the charge of visitors to a disorderly house. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And while gay men and drag queens are getting busted by the police, they um, they start kind of fighting back. And there's a riot that starts happening 60 drag queens overwhelm the police more cop cars arrive protesters light a squad car on fire they burn a newspaper stand to the ground and 
one of the transgender women who was there, Amanda St. James, said, quote, we got tired of being made into the men's room. Yeah, we got tired of being made to go into the men's room when we were dressed like women. We wanted our rights. And so they fight back. The next night, they had replaced all the windows at this place and they bust them all out again because they were just like, fuck you, which I kind of get. But um, anyways, Hell yeah. there's shit going down constantly. Um, Bo Shears in the 70s, he's also getting mad at wealthier gay rights groups. There's a society for the in, for individual rights, also known as SIR, and he believes that they're too comfortable working with the city's leadership. Um, Bo Shears says, I'm out for the total good of the people. I don't give a fuck if I'm liked or not. And uh, he believed that they didn't stick up for everyone right everyone's rights it was just like wealthier gay men not kids from the street not transgendered people and that's what he was pissed at them before um he protested this fancier event they had called the bow arts ball like b-e-a-u-x bow arts ball so like very fancy um Bo Shears wasn't invited. And so him and his followers show up and they're like, they protest their event. They call the cops on him and they still like stand on the other side of the street and scream at him. Mainstream LGBT groups end up hating Bo Shears back because he's starting to get uh, even more crazy. Um, about a year before he creates the Lavender Panthers in 1972, he helped organize San Francisco's first gay pride parade, and it was very successful. About 15,000 people showed up, but Bo Shears did something fucked up. Um, there was a group of lesbian women from San Jose, and one of the women was wearing a or carrying a sign that said off prick power. Um, And he was like, your sign is obscene and you can't carry it. And they were like, fuck you. It kind of dissolved. And then later on they see him again and he like rips it apart. And they say that the guy that was with Bo Shears like had a knife or something. And then Bo Shears just launches himself into this group of women. And he, people said he was striking out furiously in all directions. And finally they like pull Bo Shears out and they're like, calm the fuck down, dude. And the following year, the people who are organizing the gay pride parade are like, Hey bro, you can't come back. We don't want you here. And he's like, fine. Fuck you. Um, that's when also the next summer shit goes down and he starts the lavender Panthers. 
I'm wondering how uh, much of his story can be explained by cocaine. Probably a good amount. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, I haven't gotten to that. It's at the end, but there are kind of rumors that he might have had schizophrenic tendencies the older he was getting. Um, also, the fact that he had some brain injury started to kind of come into play later in his life. Mostly all of the like LGBTQ community leaders are like, we don't associate with this guy. We think he's crazy. We're not doing this. Um, The leader of Sir says, we feel the use of violence to respond to violence solves nothing. And um, yeah, so he creates this group and a guy from Rolling Stone comes and does a ride along with them. He says that uh, Bo Shears did have his shotgun. He told him it wasn't loaded with like actual bullets, but that he preferred to put rock salt in there so that when he did have to shoot someone, it would sting extra bad. Um, <laughs> but people always said if you're walking, to your car late at night, leaving a bar in the Castro, and you had to walk a few blocks to the mission. You were nervous. There were gangs that would beat up gay people, and the Panthers always offered protection. They had a hotline for people to call, and um, yeah, they would, if you were out there and they saw you, they would come at you with baseball bats and chains and mace and be like, get the fuck out of here which did happen a few times. Um, There was also more murders going on, known as the zebra murders, in which a group of men who called themselves the Death Angels shot and killed at least 15 people, but maybe more from 1973 to 1974. So that's two types of serial murders happening in this area. the police chief at the time said, there's no question that these kinds of problems exist, but I just don't think it's anywhere near as bad as Ray would have you to believe. And it's like, mm. Mm. So a lot of his followers said that Bo Shears did kind of exaggerate a lot. He said that he had like 21 members of the Lavender Panthers, but it was more close to nine. Um, Really, most of the members said they just kind of looked tough and just their presence was enough. They never really had to beat the shit out of anybody. Um, But their presence did alarm a lot of people in the neighborhood. Uh... So at the end of 74, or spring of 74, of course, anybody who gets a little bit of power is like, I'm going to run for Congress. And (laughs) so he's running for San Francisco's 5th District, and uh, he's thinking, you know, this will totally work. And... (laughs) 
somebody said, a run for Congress as a gay vigilante clergyman openly calling for violence against police made him a big target. If bro Shears was killed, one of the police officers said, uh, they'd need a civic auditorium to hold all the suspects. Damn. So death threats are coming in. Um, nobody really likes him very much anymore. He starts to get even more radical and announces that he thinks California should secede from the United States. He favored nationalizing healthcare and claimed one of his first acts as a congressman would be to free any prisoners convicted of sex or marijuana crimes. Um, which I agree with the marijuana part, but I'm definitely not on the just letting a bunch of sex offenders go. Um, so his mental stability is suffering and the message that he started out with is definitely starting to get muddied. And then in September, 1973, he's involved in a violent altercation with other members of the group. He throws one of them out of a glass window at the helping hand center that he had established. And he planned to file arrest charges against everybody and he didn't, but um, he starts to believe that the CIA and the FBI are poisoning him and uh, he starts using racial epithets, um, which is something very weird for him to do since he fought for civil rights in the beginning. He starts using the N-word and he's kind of going more and more nuts. Um, he lost a lot of followers because he was doing that. It's just a long, long spiral down. One of his friends was like, in the end, it seemed like he really didn't have any friends. He was just kind of this figure and had a lot of followers, but not necessarily anybody to talk to. He was, um, super depressed and she believed that the reason for his medical discharge from the Navy was actually that he was sexually assaulted and it kind of brought out some dark side of him that just kept growing. Um, the Lavender Panthers came to an abrupt end in the spring of 1974. On a Saturday night in April of that year, a few teenagers were throwing water balloons into the Pendulum Bar on 18th Street in the Castro, a popular gay hangout. Bartender came outside to stop him. The kids jumped him. Someone called the Panther Hotline. They show up. Um, and a scuffle breaks out. The parents of the teens complained to the police, and later on, the Panthers, the Lavender Panthers, have a meeting with the San Francisco Police Department, and they tell Bo Shears that they're going to all get arrested unless he disbands the 
Lavender Panthers. And he says they're going to fight it, but they don't. And he disband the group stops. Um, before that ended, he said he received 318 letters of support from people around the country and people living in the Tenderloin. Um, over the next few years, he continued protests, but by the late 70s, he was becoming more reclusive. He wasn't happy. He was super depressed. He stopped, he wrote a, his own newspaper called The Gay Crusader, and he stopped doing that. Um, he came under FBI scrutiny, and that even made him more paranoid because he thought that the federal government intended to arrest and shoot all homosexuals, quote. And he started rambling about Lee Harvey Oswald, Sir Sirhan, and others who he thought were also homosexuals that had been taken out by the FBI. Um, that's when later on he was rumored to have been diagnosed with a schizophrenic reaction and he was paranoid and incompetent. Um, yeah. In 1982, the, uh, one of his friends gets a call because Ray is dead. An autopsy showed a cerebral hemorrhage killed him. And he had written his own obituary, so he was prepared for it. <laughs> and the last thing that they say about him is, quote, he did all the right things in the wrong way. And that is the story of Ray Boshears, quote, the most dangerous gay in America. Well, the so. government poisoned him. <laughs> mm -hmm. I'm on board with that 100%. Also, I'm sorry if I messed up any or said any wrong names for anybody. It was in the article. <laughs> so <laughs> tell me. But wow. yeah. Yeah, it's a bummer because he started out so good and then it's like... Well, don't use the N-word and don't yeah. make yeah. excuses for sexual predators and that, all that. A loose, a loose cannon type of... Uh, yeah. But ahead of his time on a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. I also just like the idea that they would patrol and he would like wear his reverend outfit. So he had on the... What is that collar thing called? I don't know. Oh, but, yeah. Yeah. The pictures of him are pretty interesting. Yeah. Ooh, are you okay? Here. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. And follow us at Weird Brunch wherever. And make I'm sorry. I'm... This roach what? is insane. <laughs> it's so it's an insane roach. Lisa's gonna die. Somebody kill Lisa's roach. Is it gonna fly Please. at you? No, we're not in Houston. Oh, roaches fly here, bitch. You know that. Oh, what are you doing? 
CJ knocked on the window. I texted him about the roach. Oh, I thought you were waving at a flying roach. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hi, little roach friend. <laughs> it got me. <laughs> ah, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm going to stop this recording. Okay. <laughs>